Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 27 of the 13 Club podcast. My name is Kim. And my name is Miranda. So, we got an email. We got an email? We got an email. I feel like this is like Blue's Clues. Like, we just got a letter. But, (laughs) Uh, you know, look, you can't knock a classic. Yeah. Uh, But it was actually a really surprising and cool email. And it was about the movie that is coming out that is called Spontaneous. Yes. So get ready for the most outrageous coming of age love story about growing up and blowing up. (laughs) It has. Catherine Langford, Charlie Plummer, Yvonne Orji, Haley Law, Rob Hubel, and Piper Parabo. And they star in a movie about high school students inexplicably literally blowing up. <laughs> I know, for real. I like like I, oh. like not for fakes, for real. No, for real, for real. Uh I actually went and watched the trailer of it and it's like they, they do a pretty good job blowing people up. It's pretty goopy. You know, I like nice. to see that. I like a good goop, you know? <laughs> so this movie uh, is about Mara, who's played by Catherine Langford, and Dylan, who's played by Charlie Plummer. Those are our two leads. And it's about their struggle to survive in a world where each moment may be their last. But of course, an unexpected romance blossoms between them. Mara and Dylan discover that when tomorrow is no longer a promise, they can finally start living for today. And boy, are we living in a time where that is truer than ever. It is very timely. The, the cool thing about this is, one, it's based on a young adult novel, which, I mean, listen, I've read a lot of fun, spooky young adult novels. Um, do you remember who the author is by chance? Yes. So Spontaneous was written by Aaron Starmer. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago in like 2016, I think. So why are we talking about this? Because the movie, since, you know, we live in this crazy world right now, this spontaneous world, if you will, the movie is available on digital instead of having to go see it in the theater so you can stay safe inside your home. And we get to give five of you a free code to watch the movie on ParamountPictures.com. Which we could not be more thrilled about. Truly, truly, truly. How you enter is you're going to go on to the social media posts, which we will make, um, about this giveaway. It's going to be on Twitter and Instagram. So whether whether you're one of our listeners who follows us on Twitter, if you're somebody that you're just on Instagram, either one. Uh, you can, no matter where you are, you can still enter. Also, if you really don't do either of those, you can send us an email at ask13club at gmail.com. I, I respect it. You know, sometimes the world right now, I just don't want to be online. So I get yeah, it. Yeah, just, just shoot us an email. But in, in the comment, I would like to know, what is your favorite October spooky movie that just gives you those good feelings? Those fall vibes if you will. Or like those awful feelings if it's like a horrifying horror movie. Oh my god, did you just hear a ch- did you just hear a child scream? I- no. Uh, some kid walking past uh, my door, uh, a child screamed. I really hope the mic caught that because that would be so perfect. <laughs> he's, he's feeling the spooky vibes. Exactly, he's picking up what I'm putting down, you know? <laughs> it's, it, oh, okay. it's all coming together. So, yeah, we just, you know, uh, at worst, uh, you can go check out our social media posts and see everyone's 
like recommendations for a movie to watch. And if you're lucky, uh, we might be giving you a movie to watch for free. Right. And the way that we're going to be picking it is basically we're going to be putting the comments all together and we're going to be choosing randomly. So we will not be picking favorites. No. Um, Basically, it'll be a random number generator kind of a thing. We are so excited to be able to just... I love when we can just give you stuff. I mean, everyone says... Here, have a movie. Yeah, everyone says Christmas is like the season of giving, but uh, I think it's it should be year round. So I agree. <laughs> and now on to the show. Today we will be diving back into the mystery of Andrew WK. I'm so excited! I have been on pins and needles this whole time, waiting to hear more about it. I was actually happy to see that. My friend Loki was like, the 13 Club out there making me listen to Andrew WK again. <laughs> my, like, <laughs> I think I said this in the last episode, but, like, my biggest exposure to Andrew WK is I think there was a Madden game on the GameCube mm-hmm. that it had Party, 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 or one of those songs uh, yeah, on the pr- soundtrack. Hard. And my brother played that game all the time, so I remember hearing that song constantly. Yep. <laughs> Remember GameCubes? Yeah, they were actually really rad. I still have mine. I didn't get one until, like, way later. Uh, we had... This is so tangential. I'm so sorry, guys. But maybe you can relate. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, my grandmother got us a GameCube, but my parents were, like, fairly anti-video games. So we, they, like, highly monitored every game that we had. And also the GameCube had to stay at Granny and Pop Pop's house. How'd that work out for them? Well, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> so, as soon as you were able to, you got your hand on hands on as many video games as humanly possible. Uh, basically, so. Let tell me all about Andrew. So, as we left off, I read the chilling hacked message that was left on the Andrew WK website. So, right after that, within hours, days, minutes, we can't really confirm. The message supposedly authored by Steve Mike had been deleted from Andrew WK's website, replaced with a message credited to someone claiming to be Andrew WK. That's when real people started getting really worried. And that's when it was clear that something was up. Something was fucked up. Dear everyone, I have no idea what was waiting. I got back to my room and I had changed. Oh no, already? I don't like the sound of that. I immediately went and looked. Right away, I noticed that there was some, there were something messed up. I knew that there was, that something was weird in the section. Then I sank into my stomach. I knew it. You can't always imagine you. I am this, the me. I can't believe me. Anyway, soon as I started finding them, by the way, my manager showed me and I'm very impressed. I spoke and the long process of forming cleared everything out. Jeez, I just can't believe this actually happened. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe it. This whole Steve Mike thing, I can't even begin. Right now, we have solidified. We are the company. This was its insides. That's the only way to the systems. However, there is a small part that thinks it could be someone undisclosed in privacy. I can't even imagine this, but I have. I'm just a witness. You shouldn't see any of this. I talk about blackmail. Please don't believe, it says in all caps, please don't believe Steve Mike. I used to call myself Steve Mike a long time ago and it's nothing now. 
Something is trying to confuse you and make me look bad. Like a relationship gone bad. Something is pretending to be me, and this Steve Mike guy, I don't understand why people are close. If you're reading this, whoever you are will find you. I've made the following decisions. I have now completely removed myself. The music is all that matters for all of us, and that's what I am. I have the best feelings about all of it because I know that it's right. We're stronger now than ever before, and it's only because of one thing. We're still going long gone. Sincerely, Andrew W.K. There is not a single comfortable or comforting moment to be found in that message. But I think my own sense of nauseating dread becomes one of abject horror when Andrew W.K. hits the caps lock. And I imagine him just shouting at me, at the screen, at the mirror, just begging, Please don't believe Steve Mike. I used to call myself Steve Mike a long time ago, and it's nothing now. Was that whole message in caps? No, just that part. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. One possibility, Andrew W.K. was exhibiting symptoms of schizophrenia, maybe, or disassociative identity disorder. I wouldn't dare proffer such a diagnosis myself, but I saw it suggested again and again in the rare places where his state had become a topic of conversation and concern. I repeat it here and now because I've watched helplessly as several of my own friends and loved ones have suffered with severe psychotic breaks, and Andrew W.K.'s online behavior was consistent with what I've witnessed in real life. That would have been horrifying and heartbreaking, of course. But if it was not that, then what? What was going on? Who was Steve Mike? Where was Andrew W.K.? Who was Andrew W.K.? Who was Steve Mike? Who the fuck was Steve Mike? In late December 2004, the FAQ page on one of Andrew W.K.'s websites was updated to address the confusion, specifically per the FAQ's introductory paragraph, and the methodology was as follows. After sorting through thousands of emails, letters, and phone calls, we have put together a list of the most frequently asked questions related to recent Andrew W.K., Steve Mike, and 12-1704 concert events. And here are some of the questions and answers. Question. Is Andrew W.K. dead? Answer. No, Andrew W.K. is alive and well, but I like how they put in all caps, Andrew W.K., but also in quotations. No. Andrew W.K. is alive and well. Who is Steve Mike? And then in all caps, Steve Mike, caps lock off, is the executive producer and creative director for the caps lock on Andrew W.K. albums, I Get Wet and The Wolf. Steve Mike's contributions to Andrew W.K. Inc. and Andrew W.K. personally have proved incredibly effective. And for this reason, Steve Mike has always been well regarded within the organization. Question. Are Steve Mike and Andrew W.K. the same person? No. Andrew W.K. and Steve Mike are not the same person. In the past, Andrew W.K. has stated that he used to call himself Steve Mike. However, this does not indicate that they are in fact the same individual. Question. Did Steve Mike hack into Andrew W.K.'s websites? Due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to comment at this time. Question. I have a plan to help save Andrew. Can I get, can I, how can I get to him? Andrew W.K. appreciates his fans and friends' love and, and their outpour of devotion and concern. Please be advised that Andrew W.K. is not in danger in need or in need of, quote, help in any way. 
nor does he request the assistance of anyone outside of the immediate company. We encourage you to continue your support for Andrew WK by participating in the music, and that's all it has to, and all that it has to offer. You guys might just hear my dog in the background, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, I cannot make her stop. Question, how can I talk to Andrew? How can I meet Andrew? Andrew WK is well known for his easily accessible personality. At this time, Andrew WK is unavailable. Towards the end of 2004, this news item appeared on AWK World. New Andrew WK album. Andrew WK is deep in the midst of recording the third full-length album. It is called The Power Never Stops Forming. The new songs are building to an even higher level of power and exaltation. Radiance, resplendence, and richness will course through every moment of every flourishing grandstand. Effulgence will, sur uh, will surge with thunderous collapse. The gorgeousness and grandeur of sweat-dripping, blood-pumping, head-slamming moment of lustrous magnificence will fill our hearts with more strength than ever before. In other words, this is pure majesty taken to the highest level of celebratory royalty. Binary is banal. Binary is banal. There you have it. Ah, if only it was so simple. If all of this hallucinatory subterfuge were making a market, marketing stint, it would have been a really good one. This was smack dab in the middle of Lost Season 1. It was very peak of Da Vinci Code mania. There was an unusually re receptive public appetite for coded messages, secret societies, and labyrinthine puzzles. But this wasn't the Blair Witch Project or Lonely Girl 15. Nothing was being promoted or marketed. There was no album called The Power Never Stops Forming. For the entirety of 2005, Andrew W.K. was a ghost, a hazy memory, a formerly omnipresent figure now nowhere to be found. If you were to believe his current Wikipedia entry, W.K. spent 2005 shifting his focus from music to public speaking, but this is a flagrant lie. W.K. did not do any speaking until no November of 2006. In 2005, WK's entire public profile had, be, had been relegated to a small network of ever-emerging and vanishing shadow sites. There was, for example, heronauk.bravehost.com, which had ostensibly been launched to uncover the truth behind Andrew WK's very existence, or lack thereof. There was another one called louiseharland.com the, quote, official site of the so-called Louise Harlan Co Corporation, quote, a division of Andrew W.K. Inc., which was responsible for many areas of operation within Andrew W.K. Inc. and Andrew W.K. Both of those sites are gone today, along with many others. I've heard that there were 50 or so of these sites. I've also heard that there were 80 of them. Who knows? Just the same, a handful of 2005 sites are still operational. Most prominent among, among them is awilkscryer.homestead.com, an ostensibly exhaustive and oft-cited resource launched in the wake of the 2004 Jersey Show. Per its mission statement, the site's founder called Ward, short for Awkward, presumably, had heard about the concert as well as this elusive figure named Steve Mike, and thus wanted to untangle all of the knots of the thread to deliver the real history behind Andrew W.K. and his real origins. As w so these are, these are like fan sites? Nobody really knows what they are. 
Okay, because I guess based on what you said before, it made it sound in my mind like these were websites that suddenly sprang up out of nowhere that were by, quote, Andrew W.K. Well, some of them said that they were part of the Andrew W.K., like, corporation, but, I mean, anyone could say that, right? Right, and why would you, well, I mean, why would anybody in the Andrew W.K. corporation need to, like, search for the truth of the Andrew W.K. corporation? Exactly. I'm just confused. I mean, I think that's the point, is that it's confusing, but I, sorry, if I have to ask you for clarification now and then. No, it's incredibly (laughs) confusing. As Ward writes in the site's introductory, introductory section, so is Steve Mike the brains behind the AWK brand? Has AWK been bullied out of touring by his resentful creator and some sort of blackmail threat? Is it all coincidence or indeed conspiracy? Decide for yourself. There's a lot of garbage out there. Some of it is true and based on facts, and some of it is just complete misinformation. This site is my effort to explain what happened to Andrew W.K. and what's really been happening with Andrew W.K. from the very beginning. That fairly reasonable-sounding introduction might lead one to believe that the site in question had filtered out the garbage and misinformation. Instead, what you get is the most surreal, one of the most surreal and confusing documents in the entire internet. It would be literally impossible for me to summarize for you the contents of awilkscrier.homestead.com, and I contend that it is literally impossible to even read the contents of awilkscrier.homestead.com. There are numerous other sites, too, to which the same notes apply. Even though the vast majority of the old sites are now just empty parking lots, there are still at least half a dozen of them online, all in various states of neglect. They are all, all of them, treacherous nightmare pits of dead links, inaccessible images, rudimentary design, and grammatically disastrous sentences. Those sentences, meanwhile, are dense with mind-warping invocations and countless conspiracy theories zigzagging between everything from the hollow earth to the reptilian elite and somehow beyond. This is not an exaggeration. One subsection of one site opens with the following lines. The rumors connecting Tom Cruise to Steve Mike theories are shaky at best. There has been a long-running legend that Andrew W.K. is actually Tom Cruise. I don't encourage you to make any attempt to make sense of any of those sites. However, for the purpose of illustrating to you what they feel like or felt like, as they are mostly offline by now by the time you read this, I have block-quoted bits of text Uh, from some of them throughout this piece, where appropriate. To that end, as something of a generally representative sample, I am sharing below the paragraphs culled from the pages of the blog. Quote, what happened to Andrew W.K.? What actually happened with Andrew W.K. was not a case of multiple actors, but one man undergoing extensive mind control and brainwashing damage when he auditioned and was granted the lead role in the entertainment creation. The people behind this creation were a team of record executives working with Andrew's own father, James E. Cryer, who in turn were working with higher-ranking members of secret society organizations believed to be Freemason or Luciferian in nature. Steve Mike was responsible for the transformations in a very real person, and the changes that Andrew W.K. underwent were not just to occur at the start of his career when he first signed on in 1997, but again when he was further brainwashed in 2003 for his second album, The Wolf. 
I believe at some point during this heavy dose of brainwashing, Andrew W.K. turned against his handlers, managers, and Steve Mike in general, and a battle began. The war resulted in the 2004 blackmail threats and hacking after when I think Andrew tried to finally break free of his oppressors. The 2004 New Jersey concert was directly after the original Andrew W.K. quit, but it was still the same person. This is where we are understanding brainwashing and mind control can become more complicated because when someone has been the victim of mind control, they are becoming a different person and they will look different, act different, and appear different in ways that are much less subtle than the reported differences in the Andrew W.K. on stage in the 2004 New Jersey show. My theory is that it was the real Andrew W.K., but that he quit and fled from the scene only to be apprehended and then brainwashed again. Now, at this point, I do consider it possible that all of the proceeding was created as an elaborate ritual dis uh, display, which I think it's supposed to be display, uh, for either obvious entertainment or more subversive social programming. Okay, now who was responsible for those sites? Who knows? As if to underscore the uncertainty, that very question, in fact, has been addressed on several of those sites. As you might imagine, everyone involved with them is 100% anonymous, and nobody involved with them seems to know anything about the identities of anyone else. Here is a re representative answer via the truth about Andrew W.K. For better or for worse, there is no way to confirm exactly who's behind any of these sites. It's possible that we could all be the same person, although I doubt it. It's also possible that at least one of these sites is the actual W.K. Uh, webpage created by Andrew W.K. or his company to promote his music. Site 2 could actually be a legitimate attempt to represent Andrew, Andrew W.K.'s music, but it's all very possible that it's the work of a passionate fan. It seems to be growing more and more common for people to pose as Andrew W.K. and to use that position as a sounding board for their own opinions and ideas. What I find so interesting about this is that the, when someone actually pretends to be Andrew W.K. or acts like him, they are in fact imitating an impersonator. It's like making a replica of a plastic flower. Unfortunately, this makes the task of putting together the truth all the more difficult. At this point, almost all of the information I find about Andrew W.K. and just about everyone I speak with about the subject all revolves about the same unknowable sense of paranoia and confusion. On July 5th of 2006, Andrew W.K.'s third album made its way into the world. The album was called Close Calls with Brick Walls, and it was inexplicably released only in Japan and Korea. Maybe inexplicably is the wrong word. An explanation was offered, an explanation of sorts anyway. That explanation came several years later from Andrew W.K. Here's what he said. At the end of 2004, an old friend of mine got into some business trouble and basically decided to take it out on me. To cut a long story short, this person is someone I worked very closely with and had a formal and family business relationship with. Due to various complaints this person had with me, they were able to turn my life and career upside down. I wasn't allowed to use my own name within certain areas of the U.S. entertainment industry, and we were on, in a debate about who owned the rights to my image and who should get credit for inventing it. Typical legal troubles, then. The sort of stuff that forces the band called Entombed to make music as Entombed AD or whatever. The usual bullshit. Except this wasn't so typical. This was distinctly unusual bullshit, 
this was Andrew W.K. after all, and the old friend? There's only one person in the world who fits the, the description provided by Andrew, Andrew W.K., and you already know his name. Steve Mike. The explanation was utter nonsense, pure fiction, and a bit of mythology offered as fact and repeated as such until it was believed to be so. It is still believed to be so. It is not so, though, and it never was. Why, then, had Close Calls release been limited to Japan and Korea? What was the real reason? What the fuck happened there? Who knows? Fortunately, Close Calls came out at the very peak of the music snob torrent moment, when every single note of recorded music ever was being shared and seeded by the global colony of bitrate fixated obsessives. And I, at the time, I remember as the era of oink, and um, they have an article that they wrote about the era of oink. My point is that we were living in an age wherein regional markets and territories were an absolute abstraction, and web-literate Westerners such as myself were able to hear close calls if we cared enough to hear it. And when we heard it, well, hmm, here's a thought. Maybe Andrew W.K.'s label had refused to release close calls because it was a deeply weird, unsettling, and uncomfortable. It's a possibility worth considering. Close calls didn't not sound like Andrew W.K., but it didn't really sound like Andrew W.K. either. Andrew W.K. had always been weird, but this was a different kind of weirdness. In December 2006, Chris Campion, the reviewer, uh, reviewed the album for The Guardian. The whole review is excellent, but I'm excerpting the following bits for reasons that I assume will be immediately obvious. Andrew W.K. plays with notions of identity and persona, constructing an increasingly arcane mythology around himself that turns reality inside out. Certainly, no other rock star is as odd as Andrew W.K. He posts lengthy digressions on the benefits of self-monitoring on his MySpace page. His album features photographs of him in starkly unnatural poses and bathed in ultraviolet light. At times, he doesn't seem to be himself. This has led fans to chew on the conflicting rumors, many of which seem to suggest that WK might indeed be a put-on, and that all of this confusion has been intentionally sown by someone called Steve Mike, his executive producer, who may or may not be an alter ego of WK himself. It is as if he's rapidly deconstructing himself into the rock star that wasn't there, the only certainty being that the story has not yet run its course. Close Calls is the first in an already announced cycle of records to be released in the next two years. As to what happens next, who knows? Who knows indeed? While we're on the subject, I'd also like to share the following informal analysis of Close Calls via a person writing under the username Contenderizer, published on the wonderful old message board called I Love Music. Um, if you're unfamiliar, I Love Music was a place where critics, both professional and amateur, congregated to geek out over every last bit of music worth, uh, worthy of even a modicum of geekery. I Love Music was, and still is, home to some of the smartest Andrew W.K. discussion I've ever had the pleasure of reading. Coincidentally, the last song on The Wolf is called I Love Music. As I was saying, uh, below the, com uh, the below comment is what I wanted to share with you. It's, it's far better and more uh, apt piece of writing than I could produce on the subject. I found close calls with brick walls and especially the associated non-musical ephemera, art, videos, websites, theories, performances, and interviews extremely disturbing. 
It's Lynch-like in that it suggests the presence of something awful, some terrible psychological disturbance or rupture without ever really describing it directly. It has this sickening, uh, sickening tripophobic gravity of good wingnut conspiracy theory, but then everything starts to seem like an included clue, and after a while, the solution remains forever out of reach. That sounds quite like a party, doesn't it? Incidentally, I agree with every word of that comment. I'm including it here, though, because specifically because of its reference to the work of David Lynch, a parallel that is exactly on the money. Have you ever seen the Lynch film Lost Highway? I couldn't possibly begin to describe the plot of that thing. Instead, I will refer you to the late Roger Ebert. I'm excerpting lines of text from the middle of Ebert's review, so I'll note that the people referred to as they in the first sentence are Fred Madison, played by Bill Pullman, and Renee Madison, played by Patricia Arquette. Um, I hope that helps. Also, this is, bit is especially fun if you can hear it in his voice. I hope that that helps, too. They, Pullman and Arquette, go to a party and meet a disturbing little man with a white clown face, Robert Blake, who ingratiatingly tells Pullman, we met at your house, as a matter of fact. I'm there right now. Call me. He does seem to be at both ends of the line. That mirrors another nice touch in the film, which Pullman seems able to, to talk to himself over a door, doorbell speakerphone. Can people be in two places at once? Why not? Warning, plot point coming up. Halfway through the film, Pullman is arrested for the murder of his wife and locked in sol solitary confinement. One morning, his guard lo looks in the cell door and good God, it's not the same man inside. Now it looks like a teenager, Balthazar Getty. The prison officials can't explain how the bodies could be switched in a lock cell and they have no reason to hold the kid. He's released and gets a job at the, uh, gets his old job back at the garage. A gangster, Robert Logia, uh, comes in with his mistress, who is played by Patricia Arquette. Is that the same person as the murdered wife? Was the wife really murdered? Hello. Now that you've read that, reread this one line just once more from the Campion's review of Close Calls. All this confusion has been intentionally sown by someone called Steve Mike, Andrew W.K.'s executive producer, who may or may not be an alter ego of Andrew W.K. himself. Lost Highway came out in 1997, the same year as Funny Games. And like Funny Games, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Lost Highway has exerted a fairly profound influence on Andrew W.K.'s work. However, while I have no idea whether Andrew W.K. has even heard of Funny Games, I know for a fact that he is a fan of David Lynch. He has said in an interview with Vanity Fair, uh, what then does Andrew W.K. like about David Lynch? Quote, He's created an access point to a certain feeling that is very intangible, but everyone can relate to it in one way or another, even if you don't like it. Perhaps what we most get out of his work is his giving form to the formless and giving shape and expression to an otherwise inaccessible but very present aspects of life that we don't really get a chance to interact with that much. We know that they're there, it's that most real fundamental type of horror where we realize that we're only experiencing a very small fraction of whatever is really going on. On that note, one of my favorite songs on Close Calls is called You Will Remember Tonight. Perhaps, not surprisingly, I'm a simple man with simple tastes. It sounds more like the real Andrew W.K. than anything else on this album. There is something uniquely insidious and disquieting about it nonetheless. Here's a sample lyric. 
The face that you see when you look in the mirror, it won't be the same shape when you look at it hours from now. You will notice a change. In November 2006, Andrew W.K. did a lecture at NYU. It was his first official speaking engagement. Four months later, on March 10th, 2007, he was preparing to bring a version of his lecture series to the West Coast. He was profiled in the New York Times. The author of the piece in question, Melina Rizek, seems unsure whether Andrew W.K. is outright fucking with her. And, and as such, the story strikes an odd chord that rings both skeptical and serious without settling on either tone. Here's the salient stuff. Lately, W.K. has been exuberant about ideas like the nature of coincidences and paradoxes and solipsism. Also pancakes. Over lunch near his apartment in Midtown, he ordered a stack of blueberry banana chocolate chip walnut with a blend of every flavor that the restaurant ordered and slowly made a mash of them as he talked about his new passion, thinking. He has been reading the works of philosopher Martin Buber along with others and contemplating consciousness. I have been very into the idea that the only way the external world exists is by you observing it. And that the only way that you can interact with that external world through that observation is to intend it to be. He said, his eyes closed in concentration. He opened them to eat a strip of bacon. <laughs> is this directly related to the mysteries that we are trying to solve? Maybe, maybe not. I think it is, though. If nothing else, it offers a rare, sincere example of W.K.'s metaphysical curiosity, a matter to which we will return in due time. Martin Buber, especially, was an existentialist philosopher whose work challenged our commonly accepted notions of identity, experience, and objective reality. Relatedly, I'd like to highlight this quote offered in that profile, in which Andrew W.K. touches on his own artistic goals. Trying to represent nothing is the ultimate paradox. In April 2007, a month after the Times profile, Andrew W.K. brought his spoken word tour to the Seattle venue Chop Suey. And a few days later, The Strangers, um, Eric Grandy published a very brief blog post questioning whether the person on stage that night had been the real Andrew W.K. Grandy had appeared unaware of the 2004 Jersey Show. He stumbled on the Truth About Andrew W.K. blog and found a claim that it was common knowledge that Andrew W.K. has in the past impersonated himself and was understandably perplexed. Does anyone know what's going on here? What does impersonating him himself mean anyway? Grandy didn't get too many answers on this question, but he got one response that vastly exceeded anything that I have ever seen published anywhere to that point. It's a bit long and unwieldy, but I'm going to share it here unabridged. The commenter's handle? Who is Steve Mike? I know! The truth will make you sad. Steve Mike is Andrew W.K. Andrew W.K. is Steve Mike and vice versa. The whole Steve Mike created Andrew W.K. concept, the website hacking, the, act, the actor angle, the Andrew W.K. Inc. company, Louise Harland, etc. They were all designed and orchestrated by Andrew and his management company as a bit of a social experiment and a way of keeping the fan base wondering about it all during his relative absence from the spotlight. The wealth of information available, evidence to the contrary, 
35 to 45% of it was pre-written and planted in the correct places, and the rest of it simply boils down to overzealous fans coming up with their own scenarios and passing them along to other fans. After passing those scenarios along, they have a tendency to take on a life of their own, which is exactly what was hoped for by all involved. Originally, the idea was to draw the Andrew-Steve-Mike confusion out even further and into different channels, but it's been mostly abandoned to the hands of the fanbase at this point, who are keeping it alive on their own quite nicely. It is my understanding that there were at least five or six other scenarios in the works for future developments at one point, possibly more. Uh, one which, uh, of which would expand on the theory that Andrew W.K. had a split personality identified as Steve Mike, who stood for a polar opposite everything of Andrew did, darkness, despair, isolation, etc., and that the two of them would have a so-called battle for control over the identity. As absurd as that may sound, it was an idea on the table. A lot of people have had their hand involved in the creation of these storylines. In regards to the various actors play a rock star named Andrew Angle, there was is a kernel of truth to that. Several lookalikes were brought aboard at various times to make appearances in order to lend credibility to the ongoing internet rumors that Andrew wasn't real. This was also a benefit to the real Andrew W.K., who could, as a result, focus on his other responsibilities and obligations, ergo, to be at many places at once. Andrew is a legitimate artist who was discovered in early 2000 and got a huge media push as Island slash a Def Jam really believed in him and was hoping to push him as far as uh, to call him the man who saved rock and roll. The Steve Mike angle was originally intended to be a part of that. It was wildly successful in some regards, but didn't quite achieve the exact results they were hoping for, which unfortunately I'm not exactly aware of. Hence the abandonment of the Steve Mike project. The possibility uh, does exist that Steve Mike may make future appearances, outing Andrew or other things of that nature, depending on whether or not it appears feasible and the desired results may be met by the media and general public. That's all. Hope it helps for anyone confused on the subject. You see what I mean about labyrinthine puzzle? That comment has been online for nearly 11 years now, and I don't know if even 50 people have ever seen it. I don't know how I actually found it in the first place. I don't know if I could find it again. I don't know who wrote it, but I bet my life on this. It was written by Andrew W.K. On September 19th of 2008, W.K. brought his motivational public speaking tour to London's Madame Jojo's, promising to deliver a one-off stream of consciousness address to an intimate audience. What will he talk about? Boasts the press release. No one knows for sure, not even Andrew. That description would prove to be quite the understatement. Video of the event in question has long, been, has long been scrubbed from the internet, but transcripts still remain. And what you'll read in the transcripts is legitimate, epic, next-level mindfuck. For the sake of brevity, I am excerpting the wilder stuff and lightly copy-editing the stuff I've excerpted. To, but to be clear, I'm not deliberately leaving anything meaningful out, as exceptionally confusing as this is. Um, it is exactly as confusing as it sounds. It, condense, it condenses years of unsettling internet rumors into one extremely unsettling real-life monologue, not just confirming the rumors, but actually elevating the overall weirdness without actually explaining anything. 
Before we go on, I want to reiterate something at the very beginning of this. Um, this actually happened. With that, take it away, Andrew. I want to confess something to all of you. I'm not actually Andrew WK. I'm not. I'm not the same guy that you have seen on from the I Get Wet album. I'm not the same person. And I don't just mean that in a philosophical or conceptual way. I mean, I'm not the same person at all. Do I look like that same person? What I mean is that since that time, I have changed. And for any of you that happened to be there during that time, perhaps you have changed as well. And I would like to think that we are not the same people at all. And again, not just conceptually, but very literally, we are not the same. I am a completely different entity. Not to discredit what I've done before or what Andrew WK has done before. Whoever that person is. And so I'm here in that spirit. And I think that freedom is sort of hand in hand with the idea of joy and songs like Party Hard. And that Andrew, uh, that Andrew WK has done. Songs like I Get Wet or Party Till You Puke or Totally Stupid. Or whatever songs that have appealed to you that Andrew WK has presented. I am here in the name of that joy. But I'm not Andrew WK as far as that goes. Andrew WK was created by a large group of people. They met and I was there. And we talked about how we could come up with something that would move people. It was done in the spirit of commerce. It was done in the spirit of entertainment, which actually goes hand in hand with commerce. I was auditioned alongside with many other people to fill this role of a great frontman and a, and a great performer. On the one hand, it may be a little scary to admit this all to you, that I may not be exactly who you thought I was, and that the guy who was in fact first hired as Andrew WK is a different person than the guy sitting here on stage tonight. I'm the next person who is playing Andrew WK. After those transcripts were made public, WK issued a statement on his official site. It has since been deleted, of course, but you can find it elsewhere online if you search hard enough. It is very long, so I'm reluctantly abridging it here. Again, for the sake of brevity, my abridged version is still very long, but my god, I can't possibly cut it any deeper than, than I have right here. Since 2001, I have been accused of being part of a conspiracy in which I knowingly entered into a contract with creative directors who proceeded to invent a new identity for me to perform under. I'm here to say that this is simply not true and a gross exaggeration of easily explainable and commonplace music industry practices. Of course, I work with people who choose not to, who choose not to include their whole names in the credits or who, are, or who aren't on stage with me. But taking advice and guidance from other people doesn't mean that I'm a victim of mind control. The kind of people who accuse Andrew WK of being a talking head for some secret conspiracy to corrupt people's morals are the same people who claim MTV and Cartoon Network are owned by secret rulers of the world out to poison kids' brains, or that pop stars like Beyonce or Lady Gaga are part of some occult society, or that companies, companies like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Hollywood are secretly, secretly promoting hidden plans, or that the president of the USA is just a figurehead and reading a script given to him by a secret world power. Just because I work with other people who advise me doesn't mean that I am a puppet for an evil cult or I have some sort of master plan. It has become too common for musical artists and performers to be labeled as part of some global scam to control the world, or that we're puppets for a larger agenda designed to hurt people. And that's why I'm speaking out and loudly declaring, I am not evil, and neither are any one of my fellow members of show business. We are here to bring fun and light into the world, not doubt and darkness. 
I have always admitted that I worked with people that I have, and I have confessed that time and time, even critics have twisted what I said. I did this hoping it would quiet people up and put an end to the speculation and exaggeration. I was never an actor, and the partnerships I made with friends and family and companies I've worked with have all been to promote entertainment, excitement, and fun, to give people something to fun to focus on and occupy our thoughts instead of a bunch of fear or negativity. As it happens, that failed to satisfactorily resolve any of the matters in question. Soon afterward, Andrew W.K. released a video to prove that he exists, and it is titled, I am a real person. And well, I'll say that he only makes a less than convincing case. And like, there is, I can link the video, but it is like fucking weird. Um, that it's just him trying to convince us that he's real. It's odd. In November of 2009, Andrew W.K. released a new album, although it wasn't exactly a new Andrew W.K. album. This isn't to suggest that it was the work of an imposter, it just had absolutely no aesthetic similarity to any previous Andrew W.K. album. It was called 55 Cadillac, and it contained only spontaneous solo New Age piano improvisations. I truly have no idea what to make on 50 of 55 Cadillac on any level. Is it a good album? I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard another album of spontaneous solo New Age piano improvisations, so I have no basis for comparison. I'm bringing it up here not because it's an oddity or in, in the artist's catalog. In that regard, it's one of several slotting alongside esoterica like the Japan covers, which is covers of J-pop songs originally marketed, marketed as 30-second ringtones, and Gundam Rock, which covers songs from Gundam anime series. He literally has those, those exist. I'm putting it up here because it came accompanied by a statement that would seem to directly address some of the long-standing mysteries and surrounding Andrew W.K. That statement was published by The Guardian, which over the years has inexplicably become a clearinghouse for Andrew W.K.'s most dubious claims. Its headline is, Finally, I am a free man, and was paired with this truly remarkable subhead. The last decade has been so fraught with legal troubles, I've suffered hallucinations, and that's why I had to make an album consisting solely of improvisational piano pieces. Well, that's why. That explains everything. <laughs> yes. Obviously. Why didn't I think of that? The rest of it's not weird at all. We're, we solved it. Again, I'm excerpting for the sake of brevity. Uh, over the past 10 years, I've had a personal and personal and professional issues with several people involved in my career and due to formal agreements, I'm partially forbidden from going into detail regarding certain aspects of my recent work and as a result, the making of the 55 Cadillac album. Here's what I'm able to say. At the end of 2004, an old friend of mine got into some sort of business trouble and basically decided to take it out on me. To cut a long story short, this person is someone I worked with very closely and had a formal and family business relationship with. Due to the various complaints this person had with me, they were able to turn my life and career upside down. I wasn't able to use my own name within certain areas of the U.S. entertainment industry, and we were in a debate about who owned the rights to my image and who should get credit for inventing it. By 2008, after a lot of negotiating, my new business team and I had come to an agreement with my opponent, and I was, it was, I was finally in the clear. That's how this new 55 Cadillac album became possible. We based the new record label in the UK, so there was no issues in the US. However, as of last week, we've been partially pulled back into the thick of it, and I'm getting hourly updates from my lawyer as I type this. 
I really don't know how to feel about it. It's beyond frustrating. It almost feels like a hallucination, and it inspires so much rage inside me that my mind has to seek other outlets for that energy, and I start to feel dizzy, and I see stars. Anyway, I wanted this new 55 Cadillac album to sound like freedom, the sound of a piano being played by a free man, no one telling me what to play or how to play it, and no master plans, high concept visions, or worldwide goals with rollout schedules, no style consultations or acting coaches, no more meetings with sponsors or computerized yelling, no more threats. And before we move on, let's acknowledge this unlikely typo. An old friend of mind. Coincidence, no doubt, let's move forward, that a brief communique somehow incorporated every major conspiracy theory in the Andrew W.K. mystery. The psychotic break theory, I start to feel dizzy and feel stars, or NC stars, the Illuminati theory, no master plans or high concept visions, the hired actor theory, no style consultants or acting coaches. It also seemed to confirm that every last detail of the Steve Mike story, right down to the 04 website hack, at the end of 2004, an old friend of mine got in some business trouble and basically decided to take it out of me, on me. They were able to turn my life and career upside down. Furthermore, it suggests that Steve Mike was very much still in the picture, although he'd been temporarily sidetracked. The new record label, to which uh, WK referred in, to in his statement was called Skyscraper Music Maker. Uh, three months later, in January of 2010, WK announced that Close Calls with Brick Walls would finally be released in the U.S., four full years after its initial release. The legal issues that were causing WK to feel dizzy and see stars had been quelled. In the end, it hadn't taken much to satisfy the uh, aggrieved parties. It all comes down to credit, WK explained, it, explained to Rock Sound when announcing the news. Based on the contracts and various decisions we've made over the years, the people who weren't being given credit had to be given credit. An easy way for them to get credit is for them to have their name on the label. That way, whatever I put out is automatically given credit for. And just like that, Skyscraper mu make Music Maker had a new name. Steve Mike Music. <laughs> In 2010, WK did another public speaking engagement. This one at Santos Party House, the now shuttered a downtown NYC venue of which WK was a co-owner. Here's how it was described after the fact on WK's website. February 23rd, 2010, Andrew WK opened the mic at Santos Party House for a formal Q&A meeting with fans and friends. Over 75,000 people participated online through justin.tv and all tickets were sold, resulting in an extremely well-attended event. Make of it as you wish. Make of it as you wish might be the single most accurate statement published on any website owned and operated by Andrew WK. Here's the video if you're interested in checking it out. Make of it as you wish. Um, I was not in attendance at this event, but I'd rather not attempt to surmise it from the distant vantage based only on the based on the only video available to me as well as the many secondhand reviews I've read. Instead, I'm going to excerpt some of the text from a review written by The Atlantic's Chris Good. As always, I encourage you to read the full piece for a fuller extent of what happened, but irrespective of how much you read, irrespective of whether or not you were there on that night, I'm not sure if we will ever know what happened. Just the same, here's what happened. As the lights dimmed and Andrew came on stage, walking up to a lone chair on a lone spotlight set up almost as if he was about to be interrogated, which in a sense he was, 
W.K. appeared seeming quite nervous and delivered his opening statement with many pauses and some apparent emotional difficulty. Good evening and thank you for joining me. Many of you in this room are my friends, Andrew said as the audience clapped before stopping to compose himself. I understand that people want to know who I work for, he said in the statement, pausing to take a long drink of water. But please know that, as far as I'm concerned, every one of these questions and answers is a matter between my business partners and me. It's not out of disrespect for you, the press, or any of my fans, but rather out of respect for the promises made to my family and associates, promises that, if broken, will change my life in unimaginable ways. They did not ask to be in the spotlight. I did. I did. I recognize I have brought this on myself, and I know, above all, I am the one who made the decisions which have brought me here to where I am. I have a lot of work to do, and I intend to dedicate myself to doing this. Had he sung in his own voice on the first album, he didn't answer that directly, except to say, to answer your question, I am Andrew WK, and I am the same Andrew that has been there from the beginning. I am the same Andrew WK that you have seen on the albums, but he didn't say the voice was the same. He was asked who is Steve Mike, a mystery producer listed on his first album, whom many have speculated is a pseudonym for Andrew W.K. or Dave Grohl, or for the mysterious group of people alleged to have conducted Andrew W.K.'s act and persona. Andrew W.K. grew obviously nervous about this and stood up to protest, sounding genuinely scared and upset that his cre current creative vision began when he was quite young, 18 years old, and that it takes responsibility for everything that has happened since then. On my first album, I Get Wet, Steve Mike was an executive producer. This is the name of the producer that appeared on my third album, Close Calls with Brick Walls, which will be released March 23rd, 2010. He said, reading exasperatedly from papers on the stand. And then, people should understand that Steve Mike or anybody else, any other group of people I chose to work with, I chose to work with. Just because someone signed up for something or takes advice from his managers or works in... Uh, entertainment or show business with other people doesn't mean that they don't have a brain, okay? It doesn't mean that they're not a real person. This was the vision I was presented with as a young person by my family and the people that supported me. This point, the point of this is to look out into the world with a sense of optimism, with a sense of possibility, with a sense of purpose, with a sense of power, that you can make your dreams come true, he said, telling the audience that songs like Party Hard, a popular track from his first album, were written by Songs like Party Hard were written to make people feel good. Songs like Party Hard were written to make few people feel in touch with their greatest potential. As you can probably ascertain, the event was unsuccessful in its attempts to allay confusion. Although it seems quite obvious that there were no actual attempts to, uh, to allay the confusion. This was simply an opportunity to blow more smoke into a hall of mirrors. The best line of the good, Goods Atlantic piece is not so much as a surmisal, but a visceral reaction from the writer. I am a political reporter. I've covered press conferences in the U.S. Capitol. I have seen controversies play out in live settings, uh, tough confrontational questions asked. I've seen pro-performers try, pro try to duck them, but I've never seen anything quite like this. And I hate to be that guy, but we're going to have to do a part three to find out what happens ultimately with Andrew W.K. No! <laughs> I feel like I never want to do this again, this part, part one, two, three thing, but I don't want to leave anything out. It's very nuanced. 
Yeah, there's a lot to it. And I think in the second part, you went into a lot of the, um, there was the sense of uh, repetition. Yeah. The, uh, I'm saying this, but now I'm saying this other thing. And now I'm saying something that reinforces my first statement. And now I am denying it. It's not Or parts of it. It makes you feel crazy. It's very cyclical. Yeah. But if he's right, it is, like, kind of Lynchian. Yeah. I can definitely see that. And if Andrew W.K. was inspired by David Lynch. You know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a clever way to be a performer, I suppose. Anyway, there's yeah. more, but I'm, you know, having to cut it. I was thinking about how, um... There was a line you said earlier about, uh, what was it, trying to uh, portray that you don't, something that doesn't exist or Mm -hmm. that you don't exist or something like that. And it made me think about like, and this is like obviously hyperbole, Mm -hmm. but like what if Andrew Andrew WK is like uh, OG Hatsune Miku? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, and I guess, like, for anyone who is not um, aware of what I mean when I say Hatsune Miku, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Hatsune Miku is a uh, AI mm-hmm. performer from Japan um, that has the appearance of a, like, anime girl with kind of, like, teal, greenish-blue um, pigtails. It's entirely possible you've seen her around the internet and not known what you were, um, but she has concerts mm-hmm. where she appears as, like, a hologram. And I, her voice is, like, an amalgamation of several people's voices, right? And they're yeah. just, like, tuned it's together. Basically, she's a character for a, a a computer program called Vocaloid, where you're able to go in and, like, make your own songs and stuff using their voice, their, their AI voices. And there was a number of different characters. But in order to, like, promote the software and also, like, show off the technology, they made her, like, a digital pop star that they could share to the public. Yeah, but but she, like, ultimately, like, doesn't exist. Right, and um, a lot of people have made different things with her voice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's obviously not a one-to-one correlation, but it, I feel like there's a, there's a similarity here. Yeah. Very interesting. I am still... Yeah, I'm sorry hooked. that it, it's so long. <laughs> there's so much to uncover. But it's like, um, I could research it all myself, but at the same time, this guy has already, like, given so much of his life to research it, and, like, I don't know, I feel like the article deserves the coverage. I, I hear you. Um, it's, it's very, uh, in-depth. If you, if you're the kind of person that checks our, um, episode notes post, uh, you might have noticed that last week I did not include this article in the episode notes, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't want to spoil it for anybody, uh, and that means, in this case... Yet again, in episode 27's episode notes, uh, you're just going to have my notes. Uh, you're going to have to wait till episode 28 to get the uh, all the sources. Link. But um, I will yeah. say that it's written by Michael Nelson for Stereo Gum. So uh, if you're the kind of person that reads spoilers on Wikipedia before the movie comes out, you can go look up this article, yeah. Stereo Gum. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is a little bit long, but it's not super long, so I think we'll be able to get through it okay. Okay. Um, so this is going to be a frustrating one, uh, but this is one that I really wanted to talk about. Um, this as our be a friend fun Bailey, where everyone's just confused and frustrated. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes when you listen to when I think back about our episodes, I'm always like, oh, there was like one weird commonality between our cho- like topic choices, even though we didn't plan it. Um, 
And I think this time maybe being uh, irritated and frustrated and confused yeah. is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as our, our good friend Bailey Sarian would say, something that has been heavy on my noggin lately uh, is the issue of how, in the U.S. especially, justice is not served for black individuals, families, and communities. Um, this is not a new issue by any means, but this year it's been an especially visible one. Um, with outraged protests happening worldwide in honor of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, countless more. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular case uh, blipped into my radar when I think I saw someone post a link about it back in maybe June or July on Facebook or Twitter. But I think at the time I just made a mental note, like, I'll remember to read that later when I'm not so completely soaked in the least fun kind of existential dread. Right. Um, but I think I kind of forgot about it until... Recently, when it made some minor headlines again, uh, a few weeks back, so I figured now's as good a time as any to give this case some attention. Um, And you might have heard of this one, I'm not sure. Um, But today we're going to talk about the death of Tamla Horsford. Um, Like I said, it is a little bit long, but there's a lot to unpack. Um, I'm sure that there are some facts I might have missed in this episode, but I really did my best to try and get everything in here mm-hmm. uh, because I really feel that this case deserves a closer look. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that Tamla and her family deserve justice and closure. Um, and for reference, uh, most of the info I use here is from an article by Niall Capello for Rolling Stone that is called The Unanswered Questions of Tamla Horsford's Death. Um, mad props to him for compiling so much of the info out there, uh, including some stuff about Forsyth County's, uh, real fucked up racist past, which, um, I did not see included in many of the other articles that I looked at, but I think is important to bring up, uh, in this case. There were some other sources I used that had some similar info, um, but one that really stood out was the Family's Official Justice for Tamla website. And I want to give a shout out to the Morbid podcast episode on the case because they were a really excellent source for information. Um, And I recommend that you check out their coverage uh, as well. And I'm going to put all of this up in the episode notes as I do. Um, Also, I want to be clear. I am not saying anyone did anything for sure a thousand percent. I am just stating some facts that I found and giving my opinion on what I think is weird and off and stuff that I don't like. Uh, These are just my opinions and thoughts. I'm not making any definitive claims, so nobody sue us. Mm. We don't want to get sued. Yeah, that'd be that. So, Tamla Horsford was 40 years old and a beautiful, vibrant mother of five. She was born in St. Vincent and the Grenadines in 1978, which, if you're unfamiliar, is uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, And that's where she lived until her family moved to the Bronx in 1989. She met her husband, Leander, in Florida, who had a daughter from a previous relationship, and they went on to have five sons together. Um, By all accounts, Horsford was the life of the party. She liked to laugh, she liked to dance, she liked to have fun. Um, The Horsfords moved to Georgia in 2013 for Leander's work. I can't describe her any better than her family and friends do, so I'll read you directly what they had to say. Tamla, aka Tammy or Tam, was a beautiful soul both inside and out. Tam was spirited and joyful. She loved life, dancing, and spending time with her family and friends. Tam made sure that everyone felt welcomed. Her home was the place where family and friends gathered, both on all special occasions and just because. Tam was a loving, supportive, and present mom to five boys and her stepdaughter, whom she raised from a young age. 
She was the kind of mom that would always be found cheering on her boys with a big sign and a megaphone at their various sports games. She was her daughter's best friend and talked with her every day. Tam loved her children beyond words. She made her house a home and took care of the people in it. Tam took great pride in being an amazing mom, wife, sister, daughter, friend, and so much more. She was loved deeply by so many people. Tam was inclusive and accepting. She believed in spreading love, not hate. She was firm in her beliefs of fairness and equality and would not hesitate to make them known. She was proud of her ancestry. She was loyal. She loved fiercely. She selflessly helped people in need and even welcomed people into her home who were struggling to get back on their feet. Tam believed in sharing her love, compassion, and support. On the night of November 4th, 2018, Tamla made dinner for her friends, and, or I'm sorry, made dinner for her family and hit the road having plans to attend the birthday party of Jean Myers, um, and that's J-E-A-N-N-E, uh, Jean Myers, whom she had met through her son's youth football league. In fact, uh, most all of the women at the party, who were all white, uh, knew each other from youth football and they considered themselves like the football moms. Um, the birthday was a sleepover party, as Jean didn't want anyone to drink and drive. Uh, Tamla arrived there at around 8.30pm and promptly changed into a set of onesie pajamas, having brought a sleepover bag and a bottle of tequila as a gift for Jean for the event. Um, originally this was supposed to be a girls-only kind of party, um, but Meyer's boyfriend, Jose Barrera, and Tom Smith, who was the husband of another attendee, uh, ended up sticking around. So in the end, in total, there were nine women and two men, and another husband who was only there when he dropped off, and then later in the night he picked up his wife. So, involved in that night. Um, of those 12 people in total, eight were planning to spend the night, including Tamla. Again, all white, just saying. Uh, this group has come to be known by advocates for Tamla as the Forsyth 12. So, According to police statements, it was a pretty normal evening. The women drank, they hung out, they watched a football game. They were just doing whatever, as you do in such situa such situations. Um, Kim and I used to have adult sleepovers, like, all the time yeah. when we lived closer <laughs> to each other. Although with significantly less football and more YouTube. Right. Uh, Horsford stepped out to the balcony a few times to have a smoke. And basically all the women present mentioned that she smoked a little bit of the Mary J mm -hmm. as well. Um, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, Myers did ask her to stop, saying that her boyfriend, Jose Barrera, you know, he's a, he's a pretrial officer, and he wouldn't approve. And I guess that was the end of it. Um, Barrera and Smith had been downstairs watching TV th for the majority of the evening, but eventually they joined the rest of the house. Uh, they all sat down, they played Cards Against Humanity. There are, or at least there were, I'm not sure how many of them are are out there for the public and how many of them are being held by police. But there were lots of pictures and videos taken during the night that corroborate that, at least for a while, things were pretty chill. Um, Horsford can be seen smiling and laughing. She didn't appear particularly, like, sloshed or out of control. Uh, she didn't appear to be uncomfortable in any way. At one point, she sent a text to her husband saying that she was having a great time. Uh, guests who weren't spending the night began to leave around 11.30 p.m., and those who were staying trickled off to bed over the next couple of hours. Uh, Horsford was up past when Myers and Barrera went to bed, which was about 1.30 a.m. The last person to see Tamla alive was Bridget Fuller, 
who was picked up at 1.47 by her husband. In her statement, Fuller says Horsford was eating a bowl of gumbo, uh, planned to have another smoke, and then go to bed. Over the next 10 minutes, the home security system registered the back door closing, I'm sorry, opening, closing, and then opening one last time at 1.57 a.m. Around 8.45 a.m. the following day, Madeline Lombardi, who was an aunt of Jean Myers that lived in the house, uh, went into the kitchen to start her morning. As she was preparing to make coffee, she happened to look through the window and saw something outside that brought her to a halt, which is the body of Tamla. She was face down in the grass and not moving. Lombardi said a prayer and then headed upstairs to find Myers, telling her that something appeared to be wrong with, quote, her friend from the islands, which is weird. I don't know what yeah, that like means. They wouldn't know her by name. They just spent the night with her. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if the aunt was part of the party or I don't know. It's still like, who, who says that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so eventually the Forsyth County 911 is called and on the 911 call, you can hear both Myers and Barrera on the line. Um, she's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. She's completely face down in the yard. She is stiff. She was drinking and it looks like I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony. Police arrived and Tamla Horsford was pronounced dead on the scene with her body sent for autopsy. But before any results were even returned, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, or FCSO, uh, they were operating under the assumption that Horsford's death had been an accident, specifically a fall from the second story outdoor deck. And I kind of have to ask myself if they would have jumped immediately to that conclusion had it not been kind of dropped like that in the 911 call, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Like, it sounds like they just suggested, ooh, this is what might have happened, and the police were content to go with that rather than dig any deeper. Mm-hmm. And they never secured the scene, by the way. So, interviews with people at the party took place roughly a week after Tamla's death. Wow. Uh, I, I assume because they took this case to be an accident immediately from the get-go, that maybe they just didn't see any urgency. Uh, the problem with this is that it gave everyone present at that party ample time to get together and discuss the events beforehand. Yeah, strategize. And to be clear, I'm not accusing anything of anything outright, uh, because some of these people seem pretty litigious, um, and I'm a broke bitch. Mm-hmm. But but in plain speak, if you're a, if you're suspicious of this situation, which I am, what that means to me is if something happened, they had time to get their story straight. Yep. And these interviews are something else. Um, there is an archive of transcripts of the interviews that police conducted on the Justice for Tamla site. And I will be the first person to admit that I did not read all of these reports. I think there were like 11 of them and they were like 40 something pages each. And as this is not yet a full-time job for us, no matter how much I wish it were, uh, I just did not have the time to do that. Um, but, and this is a, a place where I would direct you to the Morbid podcast episode because they did spend a lot of time going through those transcripts and they do a really good job of breaking it down and dissecting it for you. Um, however, the most important thing to take away from the interviews is that they constantly contradict themselves. For example, when interviewed by the police, Madeline, and this is the aunt, um, she stated that she went up to alert Jean about the body in the yard, and she said she heard water running on the other side of the door. 
and she thought maybe Jean is taking a shower. So she went back downstairs and waited for a few minutes before going back up and knocking on the door again to let them know that Tamil was out in the yard. Which is, like, weird, because if there was a body in my yard, I don't think I would wait for someone to get out of the shower so no. I could tell them about it. I think screaming. I would have... I feel like I probably would have called 911 immediately, to be honest, but, like, you do you, I guess. Uh, however, when Jose and Jean recounted their events, they stated they were awoken from a dead sleep by Madeline knocking on the door. Hmm. If they were both in a dead sleep, where did this running water come from? And in later interviews, Jean completely contradicts her aunt's version of events even further by saying that, oh, Madeline always goes outside to check the weather in the morning. So she's claiming that Madeline was outside when she found the body. So now Madeline's going outside? Hmm. Uh, Why? And how do you know this if you were asleep? Yeah. Uh, And uh, yet another interview apparently uh this time when madeline found the body they were all already up cleaning up the mess from the night before where jose found cigarettes and a lighter up on the porch and this is drastically different from the other accounts that they have given Mm -hmm. um side note uh multiple times in the interviews everyone mentions Tamla smoking and they make it sound like not only was she the only person smoking, like she was like a heavy smoker. Um, but I don't believe that's the case. Uh, and more importantly, there were two cigarette lighters and two brands of cigarettes found at the scene. Okay. Which is pretty unusual. Yeah. That's two different if, person. That's two different that's people's two, cigarettes. That's two different people. Um, they did not test any of these cigarettes in any way. Okay. Just, you know, didn't bother. Uh, Another example of, like, kind of bizarre contradictions is that no one seems to have a straight answer on exactly when the last time was that they saw Tamla alive. Uh, So, as I mentioned before, according to Bridget Fuller, she was the last one to see her at around 1.47 a.m. when she was leaving, when her husband was picking her up. Jean and Jose, however, can't seem to remember exactly when they last saw her. Uh, Again, in interviews at first... Jose says he last saw Tamla at 1 a.m. in the kitchen, and she was talking about whether she wanted to leave right then, or if she wanted to stay up until the morning and then leave first thing in the morning. Later, he says he actually saw her last around 1.30 a.m., and she's going to have one more cigarette and then go to sleep, and she couldn't decide if she wanted to sleep on the couch or in one of the spare bedrooms. So these statements, to me, indicate a 30-minute difference of time, Uh, One shows us a woman a little bit earlier in the night who, whether she plans to go immediately or wait up, uh, does seem to intend to leave. The other is a little bit later, and this this person wants to stay, and they mention the cigarette going out to the porch, which would link up with maybe she fell Mm -hmm. or whatever. It puts her on the porch is, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Uh. I do want to mention briefly that in almost all of the interviews, at some point, it is mentioned that Tamla wanted to go home, but they didn't let her. Why? They said that she had been drinking too much and she shouldn't drive, and they took away her phone and keys. And um, why did they take away the phone? Yeah, so, like, I'm all for being responsible and not let not letting people drive when they shouldn't be driving. But, but you could call to pick someone up or call an Uber. Yeah, and this is also the woman that they all agreed was perfectly fine, not sloppy, and in control. Mm-hmm. Even if they felt like the same thing to do was keeping her from driving, like, just in case, 
Like, if she wanted to go home, like you said, they could have called her a lift. They could have called her husband to come and pick her up. Mm-hmm. There's, n- there's no reason to force her to stay. And again, like, why would they take her phone? I yeah, don't know. That's weird. I-, I can't think of any reason to take her phone away. Um, so we're going to jump backwards a little bit here. Uh, again, rather than call 911 immediately, uh, Jose goes out to check the body. He says he touched her back to see if she was breathing and she was not breathing. He also says he went to touch her leg to see if it bent, and he said it was absolutely stiff. And he says that in the 911 call as well. Mm-hmm. But then later in the same 911 phone call, he says, I have no idea if she's moving or breathing. I can't tell. Oh. You laid hands on her. Yeah, which one is it? What does that mean? Like, and in the, the tiniest part of me almost, almost wants to give him the, the benefit of the doubt in that, like, maybe you would be panicking or something. You're like, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe she's breathing. Because uh, I feel like that's what I would do is yeah. panic so much I don't trust my own judgments. Possible. You know? Yeah. But given how wishy-washy they are about everything else, I just cannot bring myself to, to do that. Like, it just seems way too off to me. And the interviews with all of the people involved is littered with this kind of inconsistency. I don't know. I feel like one or two minor inconsistencies between people can maybe be kind of normal, especially when there's a group this big. No one's memory is going to be 100% perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says a lot to me that, like, nobody, especially the homeowner and her boyfriend, can give a straight answer on when they last saw her alive, the state she was in at that time, and where they were, what they were doing when her body was found. Yeah. You know, the two kind of key times here. Mm-hmm. Um, Barrera and Myers mentioned many, many, many times that they have a security system, which includes an app that locks when the doors are open and closed. And that's where we got the, the times I mentioned before. The uh, door opens at 147, which is, you know, maybe that's when Fuller leaves. Then the door closes. Then the door opens and never closes again. Mm-hmm. Um. And they also, uh, I guess part of the security system is video footage. And they're, oh, you know, we've got video footage. We can check the cameras. We'll see what happened. We'll check the cameras for you and let you know if there's anything on there. But as it turns out, the batteries were dead that night. And nothing was recorded. What do you know? So a toxicology report from the state medical examiner said that Tamla tested positive for THC and traces of Xanax, which she was was not a prescription drug that she took, um, and that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.238, which is, like, mm, almost three times the legal driving limit. Mm-hmm. Um, at that level, people typically experience blackouts, loss of coordination, well, and yeah, vomiting. Yeah, in your system. Yeah. Um, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation performed Tamla's autopsy, and they found... Blunt force trauma to the head, neck, torso, and extremities, including abrasions of the face, four types of hemorrhages in the skull and brain, dislocation of the right wrist, and cuts on her arms and legs. Uh, On top of all that, her neck was broken, and the right ventricle of her heart had a laceration. They took into account the door alarm log thing I mentioned, and the unlit cigarette and lighter that Barrera said he found on the upper deck. Remember when he was cleaning? Uh-huh. Uh, the case was open for about four months before the Forsyth C- 
County Sheriff's Office made their official determination in February of 2019. Based on their findings, FCSO determined that under the influence of marijuana and alcohol, Horsford had gone out for a cigarette at 1.57 a.m. and sometime around there fallen to her accidental death. Strangely, the Horsford family lawyer says that no photos were taken at the autopsy, which he points out is unheard of and was likely done at someone else's direction. Yeah. Like, that's... To say that that's un- unheard of is almost like selling it short as yeah. to, like, how weird that is. Yeah, it's part of the process. Straight up. Um, so, as these formal documents were being released to the public, and as the case was kind of, like, neatly wrapped up and closed, uh, as you can imagine, the Horsford family was less than satisfied with that result. Yeah, I'm so, less than satisfied with that result. Uh, how did a woman who everyone agreed was ultimately not drunk, despite her high blood alcohol content, suddenly become messy enough to fall off a deck? And how in a whole house full of people had no one heard her fall? Could a fall from a second story deck, estimated to be 15 or 20 feet off the ground, cause death, and not just death, such severe injuries? injuries. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, like dislocated wrist, to me, maybe seems possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Broken neck, I guess maybe seems likely, but like, less so unless you really landed on your neck wrong. Mm -hmm. Um laceration to the heart muscle i mean that sounds pretty intense yeah to me yeah and to go back to the morbid podcast um one of the hosts elena is an autopsy autopsy technician okay for her day job Mm -hmm. and she has a lot of experience and like info about different kinds of injuries um and what is and is not consistent with a fall like this um she i could not even begin to summarize her conclusions but i think we all agree that uh shit don't make sense mm-hmm. and i would encourage you to listen to her uh, a little bit more medical professional uh take on these injuries um her perspective her professional perspective gives it a lot of insight mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's weird mm, i'm not sure about that uh even more questions arose so why wasn't the scene of tamla's body preserved why was no evidence tested why weren't the potential witnesses interviewed immediately particularly when you had a decent number of them all together right there, like a big old suspect buffet. Um, What really happened when the back door opened that night and why it had been left open till morning? And finally, would the investigation have been handled differently if Horsford hadn't been the only black person at that party? Yeah. Now, I imagine some people might hear that and go, hold up, is it really fair to bring race into this? And I mean... In the country that we live in, in yes. the country that this case takes place, uh, I, I mean, yeah, I'd say it is. Yeah, I but would say yes. Let's bring a little additional context into the picture and talk about Forsyth County, Georgia. So Forsyth is about 40 miles northeast of Atlanta, and it's a primarily white suburb. Um, the only incorporated city in the county is Cumming, which attracts families to its large lots, annual county fair, and quaint downtown. Uh, but Forsyth County has a deeply rooted history of animosity towards black people, um, and was home to a racial cleansing in 1912. When a black man was blamed for the rape of a white woman, and another was blamed for the rape and beating of a different white woman who died from her injuries, white mobs descended on local black homes and businesses. In the end, the town's 1,098 black residents, which was approximately 10% of the population at the time, were driven out completely. And for 
decades, the county remained entirely white. And as recently as 1990, there were only 14 black residents in the entire county. Wow. Um, everyone knows everyone incoming, and people seem to take care of their own. Take, for example, Sheriff Ron Freeman and current FCSO Deputy Coroner Chris Shelton. In 2014, Shelton was forced to resign from a nearby police force after distributing photos of himself posing with racist mammy dolls. Just two years later, he appeared in Facebook photos for Ron Freeman's 2016 campaign for sheriff. After Freeman won, Shelton was appointed deputy coroner for Forsyth County. Oh. Hmm. Shelton also works for Operation 21, a business owned by law enforcement and military veteran Brian de... I don't know how to say this name, sorry. Uh, Brian de Blois, mm-hmm. that aims to educate offenders on the law to help reduce recidivism. According to campaign registration information, Brian's wife, Anna, also served as the treasurer on Freeman's 2016 campaign. Okay. Uh, hmm. Uh, according to social media posts, the Dubois are also friends with some of the individuals who were at the party, including Stacy and Tom Smith. Photos show the Smiths and the Dubois boating out to dinner and celebrating birthdays with what Anna refers to as their friend family. Okay. Big ol' hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, advocates for reopening the case have questioned whether these relationships may have contributed to uh, Forsyth County Sheriff's Office's handling of the investigation. In response to an inquiry to the Forsyth County Coroner's Office, Forsyth County Attorney Ken Gerard told Rolling Stone that Shelton did not work on the Horsford case. Further, Forsyth County Sheriff's Office Public Information Officer Stacy Miller offered an unequivocal denial that any personal connections would have influenced the way the case was handled. There is no relationship between Ron Freeman and the Dubois or anyone else at the party the night of Tamla Horsford's tragic death, she told Rolling Stone, explaining that Freeman and Anna only knew each other in a limited professional capacity. The Forsyth County Sheriff's Office investigates each case with the same tenacity, without bias, no matter who the victim, witnesses, or suspects are. Miller also noted that the Forsyth County Coroner's Office is an independent agency, not affiliated with the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office. Let's look at the police law enforcement angle on, like, a micro level, though, specifically with regards to the Tamla Horsford case in mind, and not just that the entire department seems like maybe kind of possibly they might be willing to associate with racists and reward one another with jobs and positions as thanks for political favors. Jose Barrera was, again, involved in law enforcement as a pretrial services officer with the Forsyth County court system. And I, I looked it up just to be sure I fully understood what that job means, and it's basically like a probation officer, except before you've been convicted of anything. Okay. Um, which I did not know. Um, so... There is an indication in some of the interviews that the officers investigating the case may have already known and been familiar with Barrera and Sean. During the interviews, which took place at her home for some reason, she is consistently very familiar with the officers, and they seem familiar with her in turn, having a decidedly friendly rapport. Remember, this is a small town, everyone knows everyone, so maybe this isn't what it seems, but given her boyfriend's career, it's not unlikely that this was more than just a southern belle being exceedingly polite to her guests. At one point, when officers are interviewing Madeline, the aunt, uh, 
Jean busts into the interview and says that she bought all the officers gift cards, but someone told her she shouldn't give them to the police because it might look bad before the case is over. I kid you not, she says she bought them gift cards to Dunkin' Donuts. Can you, like, get more on the nose? What the hell? This is, like, what? Can, I don't know what's worse, if she was actually friends with these cops and bought them the cards? Because if they knew each other before this and this really was just some random gift, that means they definitely have a pre-established history that's likely to influence how they handle the case. Mm-hmm. And if they don't know each other... She's straight up trying to bribe them and is so unshy about it that she mentions it while there's a tape recorder on. Yeah. Like, and that's crazy. Like, but, but they said not to because it looked bad. But, I mean, if you're still down for bribery, I'm still down right. for bribery. It's, it's available. Yeah. And, like, did no one listen to these tapes or, or see this transcript and think that maybe that's a problem? Or, like, yeah. think to check this out? Yikes. Of course, even if you take away how, like, uh, how it looks when there's a big party where the only black person in attendance turns up dead, and maybe, maybe not, some of the people present there have ties to law enforcement, a lot of things still just don't add up. So one super weird thing was the position of the body, with Tamla being face down. And not just face down, she was, like, face first, face down. Uh, According to the incident report, quote, most notable when Tamla was turned over was the fact that she had come to rest face down. Her head had not been canted to one side or the other. So it would be like if she didn't even flinch before she hit the ground. You know? Like, she didn't, like... I mean, she was probably already dead. I mean, sorry. I mean... Uh, her legs were found extended behind her with both feet pointing to the right. Her right arm was close to her body and her left arm was extended and bent at the elbow. I cannot say for sure, as obviously I'm not an expert, but to me, that sounds like a body that's been placed there. Like, what are the odds that you fell in such a way that it broke your neck, but you land with your head just, like, face front straight ahead? Also, having both of your feet, like, your legs extended straight out like that, it makes me think of her being carried. Like, maybe even by, like, two people where, you know, like, one person holds her lower body by, like, the feet or ankles, and maybe the other person has her upper body, like, under her arms or something like that. Yeah, they, like, hoisted her off there, yeah. Say what? And they, like, hoisted her, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it makes me picture. Uh, It's, I'm just saying it's a strange way to fall off a deck. Yeah. And, And while we're talking about the position of the body... Uh, let's talk about that extended arm for a second. So Jean Meyer and her boyfriend Jose, in statements to the police, both asserted that when Tamla's body was discovered, both of her hands were down close at her side. But as we've stated before, when the police arrived at the house to respond to the call, Tamla had one hand out, the one with the swollen, dislocated wrist. Both Jose and Jean swore that they did not move her arm. So if we take their statement at value, who did move the arm? And why? And and why? And I didn't mention this before, but there was no blood at the scene. Like, if she had fallen and been out in the yard all night, I would think there would be some blood pooling. Yeah. If not on the ground around her, like, in her nose and mouth, maybe? Or something? I think they found a little bit of blood on one of her shirt sleeves, and that's it. And if you remember, there were some cuts on her hands and arms, so maybe those are defensive wounds. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, 
And this is this is the last time I'm going to invoke the Morbid podcast. But again, as I mentioned, one of their hosts has like dead body experience. And she spends some time talking about rigor mortis Mm -hmm. and how um, based on when the body was found and the fact that Jose told the police that she was absolutely stiff. uh, If you compare that to how long like the body possibly could have been out there based on times like when people said they last saw her. And if you take into account weather conditions at that time, it does not make sense. And she would likely have had to be dead a few hours before people claimed that they saw her last. Yeah. So this basically throws into question every single thing anyone said about the last time they saw her at any point. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, Again, if you want to go listen to her talk about it, it's her job. She knows about rigor mortis more than I do. uh, And it's her theory. But when I heard that, I was like, okay... Uh, this whole determination that they've handed down that this was an accident, like, if I didn't think it was sus before, now I'm feeling like it is absolute garbage and we need to throw it in the trash 100%. Yeah. So, like, if I had had even the slightest shred of doubt at that point, like, gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in February 2019, this final decision on the accidental death was being handed out and Tamla's friends and family were just like, <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me? Uh... Turns out, Jose Barrera, who, just again, reminder, this is Meyer's boyfriend, who was a pretrial hearing officer, was fired after he used his position to access the Horsford incident report and look at the name record for Myers via the records management system database. So this definitely looks weird. It looks like, it, it looks like he's trying to get in there and see what is officially on the record. Yeah. About the case. And this came to light... Because Michelle Wynn Graves, who was Tamla's best friend, had made Facebook posts accusing the Forsyth 12 of being responsible for Tamla's death. And in return, seven of the individuals that night, including Myers and Barrera, uh, were suing her for defamation. Mm. So the lawsuit was dismissed, uh, but they appealed it anyway. (laughs) So they're still trying to sue them for defamation. Okay. So, yeah, like I said, the folks involved in this uh, are uh, willing to make lawsuits. Yeah. And I'm not trying to get involved in that. Yeah. Uh, Ashland Harris, an advocate for the reopening of the case and organizer of a uh, one of the earliest Change.org petitions to try and get Tamla's case looked at again, uh, also claims she's been targeted for publicly criticizing the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department, alleging harassment by the agency. In November of 2019, a coming police officer detained Harris while looking for three men involved in a car accident, calling in a Forsyth County Sheriff's Office deputy to help with the investigation. Harris was cleared and let go, but went on to file a complaint against the officer involved. He was later exonerated by coming police chief David Marsh. But Harris says her issues with local law enforcement continued. Later that same month, deputies from the FCSO showed up at her home with a warrant for her devices, based on the suspicion that Harris sent an accusatory anonymous email to one of the individuals present the night of Horsford's death. Harris denies authoring the email and has now sued Forsyth County Sheriff's Office Detective Jeffrey Rowe and Sheriff Ron Freeman for civil rights violations. The FCSO was not able to provide Rolling Stone with comment on pending litigation, but noted that it was not FCSO, but the coming police department that initially detained Harris on November 15th. So I guess they're like, we didn't do that first one, but... Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's bizarre. Like... I remember seeing this when it happened. Yeah. And I, like, just, I think I just read a quick article about it, and I was like, well, Mm -hmm. that sounds like Get Out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, 
so eventually the Horsford's family lawyer that I mentioned a little while ago, um, let me look, I think I forgot to write down his name, but let me peek real quick at what his name was. One second. That over again. Okay. So eventually the Horsford's family lawyer, Ralph Fernandez, sent a letter to Tamla's husband, Leander, uh, earlier this summer where he says, based on his own review of the records relating to the investigation, he felt homicide was a strong possibility in Tamla's case. Um, I'm not going to read the letter here because I've been going on quite enough at this point, um, but I am going to link it in our episode notes. But basically, he says flat out what I think Tamla's family was feeling all along and what I think you and I and people like us are probably thinking all along, which is that none of this makes any sense. Nothing lines up. Um, he mentions the conflict of the witness statements, the potential handling of the body by somebody before the police arrived, and I'm, I'm talking about the moved arm, um, the lack of autopsy photos, and he comes to the conclusion that to him, based on the injuries in the medical examiner's report, it appeared that Tamla was involved in a struggle. He says that he had difficulty getting records from the FCSO, and quote, that the truth never had a chance here. He goes on to say, my years of experience lead me to believe that 80% of cases where African Americans die under mysterious circumstances end up closed or cold because there are no videos and the only witnesses are bad guys or good guys that deep down are really bad. Then you have cases where law enforcement does a poor job and cares little to investigate thoroughly because of some connection or association to the perpetrators. Yeah. So... We're getting close to the end here. We're going to fast forward to the to roughly the here and now. So we're in September 2020 now. Um, and this is what sparked me to dig back into this case. Uh, news has come that authorities are planning to reopen the case Thank based you. on the statements made by the Horsford family attorney in his letter and the fact that the case started to receive a ton of public attention uh, under the like Black Lives Matter movement uh, that started really like pushing forward the summer. Um, to me, this case stands out because we have become so used to and in, in ways desensitized to cases where the violence between police and black communities is so in your face. It's a woman getting shot in her bed. It's Well, there's so many that you know, it's hard to it, even keep it straight. Right. Totally. But it's, it's, it's these kind of, um, in my mind, undeniable acts of, in, like, cruelty oh hell it's, yeah you you, sh you shot somebody you know and it's it, we all you know we didn't literally see it but like we all saw it happen you know yeah. particularly as video gets more involved and we're documenting these cases what's or, so or weird to not involved because we decided to turn off our body cams right well what's weird to me is that it's to me seems clear that something happened oh yeah and and this place the police violence is the l lack of doing absolutely anything well, yeah, it's the the inaction that is the yeah. violence so many times yeah. it's just as bad and it's it's we're in a place right now where we're again and i'm not uh trying to equate any one type of crime to another uh as in one is better or worse but like we're right now being bombarded with um a certain type of police violence against um black people when this kind of uh, discrimination and, like, absolute fuckery is also happening and going on all the time, but it's it's not someone getting sh shot, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not, uh, it doesn't, it, it kind of slides under the radar. But it's because so deeply, it's not as... It's so, it's so deeply rooted that, in a way, we kind of just expect it. 
and it's it, deeply rooted in a way that sometimes I think we can't see it. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, we didn't think, we don't think anything's weird because this is how it's always been. Right. I just, I, the more I dug into this case and the more details I found out about it, it just blew my mind that anyone could, just on, like, the witness statements alone and how nobody's story at any point was ever straight. I don't know. Uh, it, I just was like, how could you ever think that there was nothing suspicious? Yep, this was just a, just fell off the deck. I don't know why, but this is nagging at me. But, like, also the way that they refer to her mm-hmm. um, and the picture that they paint of her, which, was like, one, your friend from the islands. Two, she was eating gumbo, which, like, almost doesn't sound real to me. Like, she was just eating gumbo because that's what people from the islands do. And then her, them being like, oh, she was a heavy smoker. Yeah, I didn't mention it as much, and this is something that they got into kind of in the Morbid episode, because I'm try- I'm not trying to rip Morbid off by any means, but they did have some really good info. Uh, but they bring up, because they did go really deep into the interview portions, um, there were several times where it sounded like they were trying to uh, either intentionally paint her bad or, like, flat out make up rumors about her. Like, yeah. I think at one point they tried to insinuate that she did crack. Well, of course they would. Um, it was... It was just, like, insane, insane. Well, everything about the case screams murder. Like, everything about it. Something fucking happened. And in any other situation where you don't have this insidious connection and these free passes here and there, blatant bribery out on the table in recordings, like, this would never fly. No, period. Never. Never, never, never. If we're going just based on the evidence and the facts, this would be labeled as a murder. Because it looks like one. It, yeah, it, it, what, it's the, you know, looks like a chicken, acts like a chicken, sounds like a chicken. Yeah. It's a chicken. Yeah. Except this time it's a frog. Yeah. Supposedly. (laughs) I don't know, this case just got me, like, kind of riled up. I, I... I'm really thrilled to hear that it's going to be reopened. Yeah. Um, I hope that we can start getting some answers soon. And I really hope for, like I said at the beginning, justice and closure for her family. I don't know who did it exactly. Obviously, I can't place where things people were. I don't even know the names of everyone that was that was involved. But it sounds like it was a murder and it sounds like a premeditated murder. That's the, that's the thing that I'm not sure of, is if it was premeditated or not. It sounds to me, this is me speculating, I don't know. It sounds to me like they never really would have been hanging out with her mm. if they didn't plan to do something awful to her. I do wonder, because, like, a part of me wonders if, like, the Xanax throws me off? Because yeah. I don't know, it, I don't know if you were going to drop Xanax in someone's drink, like, what the effects of that would be? It, it, like, is Xanax a drug that you would typically use to roofie somebody? It can be, and it's actually very, very bad when combined, because it can uh, literally cause you to stop breathing, because it will just cause your internal breathing system to just shut down. I actually, mm-hmm. when I was 19, one of my good friends died of a combination between of Xanax and alcohol. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's it's a whole like CNS depressant. So you just your body just stops breathing. Well, see, maybe I mean, 
and not to say that it wasn't premeditated or something like that, but maybe, like, it was, like, some kind of accident that went horribly wrong. Like, maybe they and somebody intended to roofie her or something, or maybe somebody just thought, I'm going to put a little Xanax in her drink as a joke, and her breathing shut down and she died, and they were like, oh my god, what the fuck do we do now? And we're going to make it look like she fell off the porch, and we're all going to really lean into this smoking out on the porch thing. And... Yeah, but it's just also, weird. Sometimes Xanax is a party drug, too. Um, yeah. And That's what I was thinking that it was. So I don't was know, like maybe a, they, like... Uh, this is me being as nice as I can to them in this moment. Maybe they, somebody had brought Xanax, she decided to partake in it, and then she died. But I just feel like, why would you not say that? It was an accident. Because they're too afraid of going to prison? But they have friends on the police force. It seems like they don't have much to be afraid of. I don't know. That's like, that's I don't my, know. I don't like know. I said, that's, I don't think even think that's what happened, but that's my nicest speculation right. I can give. I I think, like, deep down in my gut, if I were to ask myself what happened, I, again, don't know why, but I do think she was murdered. Yeah. There's evidence of a struggle. She put up a fight. Also, they could have given her Xanax to get her, like, ready so she didn't struggle so much. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an upsetting case, but I uh, wanted to share it with you guys. But yeah, that sucks. I really hope that we get something else out of this case i'm gonna be keeping a close eye on it yeah. because i really want to know and if i hear any news or anything like that yeah. also like you know the text message where she got her husband was like i'm having she was like i'm having a great time how do we even know she typed that right because they took her phone away yeah what if they sent that what if she was already dead at that point yeah And the, I feel like, again, going back to the little bit about how, like, how could somebody just fall over the deck like that and yeah, not a single like, person heard it? Like, plain. I feel like they all have to be complicit to some extent, even if somebody didn't, even if, because they, I think they, in the Morbid podcast, I think it was, they mentioned that there was one girl that was straight up so drunk off her ass, they had to, like, carry her into a room okay. and lay her down or something. But, like, that you were absolutely dead to the world but like, i cannot can ver- imagine. how can we verify that now there's no way yeah that's yeah it's all fucked man yeah and i'm angry i'm, angry I'm worked too. up yeah. i don't sound angry but i you'll have to trust me that i am angry i feel like my voice doesn't convey anger in general it's hard sometimes to like i feel like we just have a base level of anger at this point <laughs> I'm and always so, kind of angry. Yeah, like, so, even though we are sarcastic and make jokes, it is, like, absolutely, this is absolutely fucked and it's really not okay and I hope that we find out the truth. Yeah. So, on that note, <laughs> I guess now's as good a time as any for us to go ahead and wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned a lot of articles and documents and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that is going to be linked up on the episode notes for episode 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find that on our website, which is 13club.com. Uh, you can also find links to all of our different social medias. You can find links to contact us. Uh, we've got an email where you can send us questions, comments, concerns. Um, give us a recommendation for something to cover next. You can tell us your own spooky story and we'll share it on the, on the show. Remember when we talked about the spontaneous movie and it was based on a book 
spontaneous movie you mean the movie that you are gonna that we're giving out codes for free yes that one yeah i remember that movie and i remember that you said it was based on a book so guess where you can find that book i have no idea but i have a feeling you're gonna tell me audible you can find it on audible and you know what you guys i looked at our trial terms and i noticed that they actually made it better so now what you get when you sign up with our code is you get one credit or two credits if you're already an Amazon Prime member and you can do any premium selection titles and those are yours to keep forever. Forever. And then, and then you get access. It's basically like a Netflix of like podcast, uh, guided wellness and audible originals which include like the Sandman production. Uh, and you can listen to those, like, as much as you want. There are no credits needed. Then they will send you an email before your trial ends if you want to cancel. But, like I said, you still get to keep those books. Yeah, so even if you decide that Audible is not for you or you just don't, re- yeah, whatever, uh, these are still yours to keep. Yes. Which is a pretty sweet deal, if you ask me. I think that's great. I like free stuff. And also, if you just, you know, you're listening, maybe you're on your commute and you're just getting ready for the morning and you just want to have something in that travel cup and we can offer you that so uh we also besides being connoisseurs of great audio literature uh have a love of coffee uh and if you want something to put in your travel cup while you're on your commute you're listening to a really great audiobook or podcast um you can absolutely get a 13 percent discount off your order at graining coffee company uh, if you use our code. Um, Grinding Coffee Company is this like uh, indie, black, queer, lady-owned uh, coffee company. They have a huge selection of different kinds, whether you are into like country, like qu- country origin blends, or if you like kind of flavored stuff. They even have like cold brew and K-cups. So whatever kind of coffee you like, I guarantee you they have something that you will uh, absolutely adore. And they are a lot more ethical and a lot more delicious than your average Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, they definitely go out of their way to try and be um, uh, really ethically sourced and ethically grown and give back to the communities where they get their coffee from, which is pretty important to us. Definitely. And if you would like 13% off your order, just type in the XIII Club when you go to checkout. Yes. Uh, I actually just recently got in an order of their pumpkin spice flavored coffee because it is October and it's really good. So I think like I'm usually when I think pumpkin spice, I think of like your Starbucks-esque. Super sugary. Super sugary. This is like a more muted, like it's the spice of pumpkin spice kind of. Mm, Like it's got a mm -hmm. little bit of a kick to it. The pumpkin is there, but it's very like kind of like muted and like warm tasting if that makes sense and mm-hmm. there's even like a tiny bit of a like chocolatey aftertaste oh. to it so it's like very like luxurious but not in an overwhelming way it's not like punching you in the mouth with sugar or like a bunch of artificial flavors it's it's still coffee it tastes like coffee but if you wanted to you could mix that up into a latte and put sugar oh. in it if that's your style yeah, for sure. I'm definitely not trying to shame that. I think I was just really impressed because I, like, went into it expecting the thing that I pick up at Dunkin' Donuts, but just in my home. But this is actually a much more, like, luxurious, like, flavorful It's coffee. a mature pumpkin spice for mature 
connoisseurs a, of coffee. <laughs> it's a, it's like a very like dark pumpkin spice. I just went on and I ordered for my mom the flavor samples, and she's really excited to receive them. I want your mom, your mom to review them for us. Yes, I'll <laughs> actually, yeah, I'll have her. My mom is like our biggest fan, and like as soon as we had like coffee or anything. She was just like, I'm on it. I'm buying it. Oh, my God. (laughs) I just got an email right now to let me know that the order that I sent her of her 13 Club travel mug has arrived. What? A travel mug, you say? Yes. Um, We made five designs on Redbubble. And if you're not familiar with Redbubble, they are a really cool uh, website where you can basically design things and they will print them for you on so many different types of materials. So what we did is we each made two original designs handmade by us, and then we also have the the original logo if you just want that. You can get on stickers, phone cases, iPad cases, shirts, hoodies. I don't. There's so much stuff on there. I don't even remember at all. I think it would be pointless to try and list it all because there truly are that many options. Yeah, even like notebooks, stuff like that. And the stickers are really, really nice quality. Yeah. I, I think we, we had a prototype t-shirt. Uh, and I that, love it. I that wash you it. you have one of them. I wash it and wear it, like, every time. Like, you know when you have that favorite thing that comes out of the wash? That's my favorite thing. When I'm at home, I, I love to wear that shirt. Um, it, it's it so soft. It looks really comfy. It looks really comfy. I can take a picture of it. We have changed the design a little bit just to make, like, the, the podcast name just stand out a little bit more. But it is an awesome shirt. Um, so it right now we are working on getting the URL for our Redbubble store to match everything else, but Redbubble has been a little bit bogged down by COVID support requests. So if you just search, go to Redbubble and search the 13 Club in the search bar, the XIII Club, and also the username is the 13 Club Podcast. So you should be able to find us pretty easily if you just go to Redbubble.com. Yes, and I think uh, again. Well, once they update our link, um, that'll be one thing. But I think for now, the old URL should still work. And there's a link to that on our website as well. All right, guys. We'll talk at you next week. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.